Hey folks, I'm Bob St. Pierre. Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast. A little preview for this episode. In February, long before we ever imagined a spring season sheltered in place, I had the chance to sit down with Howard Vincent, President and Chief Executive Officer of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. A lot has changed since then. For starters, Howard became a grandpa for the first time, welcoming little Ezra Vincent to the family. And we've all had to adapt to a new way of working remotely. Nevertheless, this is a timeless episode. We go down memory lane with Howard in this podcast for some terrific stories about Pheasants Forever's early days, the creation of Quail Forever, and Howard's vision for the future. I hope this podcast finds you safe and healthy, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. It's easily one of the best on the wing podcasts today. Here you go. I'm in the principal's office this morning. <laughs> Funny. Uh, not really, but sort of. I'm in uh, Howard Vincent, president and CEO of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, and um, uh, I am in your office. And it, what some folks we've talked about it on the podcast before, but a lot of a lot of people probably perceive that Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever, have this great big you know, professional building. And that's not the case, is it? No, no. We're, we're not big into brick and mortar. And, you know, we have a single-story office building here in uh, White Bear Lake, Minnesota, just north of St. Paul. And it's it's modest and functional. Mm-hmm. Is the clean? You know, we, <laughs> we, take clean. A, we, we take a lot of pride in it. <laughs> yep. You know, we've got our short, uh, our small prairie out front, you know, we mm-hmm. tore up the sod and put in a, a native prairie out front. And, you know, so we've we've tried to, you know, make it in our image here. But, you know, our we, we say, we have a saying, our monuments are, you know, out in the field. Yep, yep. Our, our dollars go out to the landscape. Yes. And I've described this place as a nondescript building in an industrial park in suburban St. Paul, right? You nailed I mean, it. You you drive around here and there's a couple signs on the on the building, but outside of that you walk in and you're like it's a warehouse with some cubicles. Yes. And and you do have an office, but you have uh, uh, an office that any accountant would would think is when am I going to get that next promotion? Right? Yeah, yeah. I've got a twelve by twelve office and thirty years of stuff. <laughs> you do have a, you do have you get some photos of uh, uh, the Ringneck magazine winter of two thousand and one when your two boys were on the cover yes. twenty years ago almost, and um, we'll, we'll talk about Marco and Ian a bit, but uh, you do have a, a few things that are definitely reflect who you are i see a, a image of, or painting of the boundary waters uh, you got a rough grouse yeah. uh you got a couple rough grouse uh, pieces of artwork you're right above your head is obviously a ringneck pheasants you got some quail artwork your patron membership plaque baseballs we have Baseball, that in yeah. common yes um, talk tell me about the uh, our listeners might not know this they, they maybe they've heard you on some co- podcasts in the past, and they know your Duluth upbringing. Mm-hmm. 
you went you grew up in Duluth, you went to UMD, and you played baseball at yeah. UMD. Well, okay, let's let's be honest here. So I was on the team. Playing is different. <laughs> so yeah, freshman year I was on the University of Minnesota Duluth baseball team. Just walked on. Not a great program, you know, not a Well, significant... there was a major leaguer from your team, wasn't there? Wasn't there a pitcher that went to the Tigers? Uh, no, that was high school. That was a oh. uh, uh, kid I played with against and uh, from Hermantown, Minnesota. Um, yeah, he was. We were both on the city all district team. You know, he was the single talent that mm. went into the majors and had a nice run there. And I'm blanking on his name. Yeah, and I am too. Oh, um, okay. Uh, it'll come to us. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, I was. You know, I'm a. You know, of course, in high school, you might play football and baseball and some basketball, but, you know, kind of baseball was my passion and, Mm -hmm. you know, walked on at UMD, was on the team for a year, and that didn't play well with coaching myself. Just wasn't a a great event, and uh, that was enough of baseball for me. But I continue to love baseball, and, you know, I'm a fan, and, you know, to be able to, you know, be, uh, have an opportunity that, thank you, Bob, Set up for me. I get to throw in the first pitch <laughs> about a, a year or so ago. Uh, that, one of the Dozier's the, deck promotions. Yeah, yep. and that was amazing. That was just yeah. really amazing. And I got it over the plate, you know, dusted it in the dirt behind, but, you know, <laughs> didn't make too much of a uh, a scene there. But uh, yeah, uh, that's I think magic. I, the, the one bit of advice is I, I coached you not to look at yourself on the jumbotron. Yeah, and I failed at that. <laughs> yeah. Because I was really cool through the whole thing. Um, I hadn't thrown a baseball, mm-hmm. I think, in about five years. And I was thinking I was going to throw ahead of the mound, mm-hmm. right in the grass, you know, 40 feet, not a problem. My son said, no, you better throw the ball here a little bit. <laughs> and so he had come to our to my house earlier in the day, and we had thrown a couple. First one I threw back into the garden. <laughs> he responded with a throw that dented the house. <laughs> And then, so that was good that we actually threw a couple. Then we got to the field and I was still calm. I was okay until they said, go ahead and throw off the rubber. And I went, what? (laughs) I thought we were just throwing out. He goes, no, 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 go right right to the rubber and go ahead and so then. Because back in the day, right, nobody was allowed on the rubber except the starting pitcher. Right. I don't remember anyone, you know, doing that. And so then, and Bob had warned me, don't look at the Jumatron, but so at that moment when I start walking out, I don't want to step on, you know, old baseball, I don't want to yeah. step on the chalk line, right? I step over it, then I look up, and I see myself on the jumbotron <laughs> walking out onto the field. So for that 60 seconds, and then that mound is really high. I mean, I don't think I ever, well, I know I never threw off a professional mound. Mm. You know, high school is not the same. College mounds are not the same. And so I feel like I'm 10 feet high looking down. And it's like, okay, don't, you know, throw it in there with some good velocity. I'm not going to wimp it in. I'm here. Here's my shot. Yeah. And I felt good about the throw, (laughs) right? I'm a legend in my own mind. (laughs) And then uh, what was funny was afterwards, for the next week, people heard about that I had an opportunity to do this. They were sending me all of the best pitches first pitches, p- first pitches. Yeah. and there was some i'm good it's a good thing i didn't see it beforehand because there were some you know people threw it in the dugout mm-hmm. right snoop dog threw his in the dugout right and 
I mean, all these uh, disasters. Well, it's that famous scene from Major League where the person uh, hits the mask yeah, out, right? Exactly. Well, just, just a bit outside, <laughs> Bob Uecker said. It, yes. it, for folks that um, maybe aren't familiar with um, the kind of the promotions we're talking with, uh, uh, talking about, uh, we've been fortunate for probably seven years running now, and it started with Brian Dozier, who uh, played second base for the Twins, was a big-time um, hunter and kind of some connections that I had from my baseball ball world connected us, Pheasants Forever and Brian Dozier, and we started a promotion, Dozier's Deck, that a ticket package came with a Pheasants Forever item, and the Twins made a donation for every ticket we helped them sell to our Habitat mission. And right. a couple of years into that promotion, you get to throw out the first pitch. And that's ex- um, expanded to, you know, we had promotion with the Minnesota Wild. We did a uh, Detroit Tigers promotion last year and one set up for this August. I think the Tigers is August 1st, 2020, and the Twins is August 15th, 2020. And... Um, we even have a promotion with the Chicago Cubbies yeah, uh, spring big. training, which uh, with Quail Forever. So some of these uh, sports promotions are um, kind of taken off a little bit, and just we do get trolled on social media. It's like, well, why are you guys spending money on these promotions? Well, the reality is we're not. Right. They're, they're paying us uh, a royalty for helping them sell tickets, and at the in the meantime, it's you know through. Major League Sports, we can put Blaze Orange and our Habitat mission out there and reach some different audiences than we would normally. Yeah, that's a sight at the uh, Wild Hockey game to see all those Blaze Orange hats. There's like five, ten thousand of them out there that evening. Eighteen thousand. Eighteen thousand, yep. and it was. Uh, it's it's a sight to behold. It's it's pretty impressive. So. Your hero growing up, and folks probably are familiar that I've named a few of my dogs after some of my heroes, Trammell being one of them. Your hero growing up was Johnny Bench, right? Sure, sure. So, you know, growing up in Duluth, Minnesota, uh, we had the Duluth Dukes, which were a like a single-A or double-A Detroit Tigers affiliate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we were a pretty poor family, so it's not like I got to go to any of those games. The Twins... You know, we're on radio, but as a young kid, um, you know, you don't, you're not listening too much to baseball on, on the radio. But primetime TV on weekends, uh, if you think about that time back in the '60s and '70s, Cincinnati was, you know, the the best team on the planet, and to have a John and I. So my father would have said. You know, the, I was a catcher, and so mm-hmm. I wore the tools of ignorance is, <laughs> is what he called it. Um, and so, of course, Johnny Bench was all that in a bag of chips for me. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was really cool. That is because Cincinnati, even to this day, you know, you're driving around at midnight. There's an AM signal, and I forgive me, I don't know the, the call letters, but you can pick up Cincinnati radio stations all over the Midwest. Yes. And that's what you're referring to. You're, yeah. you're able to tap into that. And right, right. And then, all the, you know, the best games of the week, you know, mm-hmm. Cincinnati would usually be in there. They right. were, you know, taking the run, and they had a couple World Series. Right. And Sparky Anderson Sparky. and the Big Red Machine. Yeah. Da- Dave Concepcion, George Foster, Pete Rose. Pete Rose, right. Yeah, that was a good club. So uh, catchers are often tapped to be managers. Uh, you know, a, a former 
players that end up being managers, I, I'd, I'd venture to guess catchers are the number one position that end up being managers. Uh, how do you think that correlates to, to being a leader? And do you think there's a parallel for you leading an organization like Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, thinking about being a catcher? Sure, I can see that. Um, you know, the, the, the catching position, you're, you're not playing every position, but you're sure managing every position. You're moving, at least, you know, in the day, uh, you're moving outfielders around, you're calling the pitch, you're mm-hmm. calling the throwouts, um, you're managing it. You know, none of this happened from the dugout. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you never, you know, now the managers are and coaches are calling every single pitch. Um, you know, that was, of course, it's high school and, sure. you know, in college. So you're you're managing that. And I was, you know, I felt I was a student of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd try to steal signals <laughs> from my catcher position. <laughs> yeah. But you would right. do it without a trash can. Oh, yeah. Like the right. Houston or, Astros. <laughs> yeah, or I wasn't video, you know, videoing anything. But, I mean, right. you're paying attention to what the third-base coach, you know, right. when, when I'm catching and there's a batter in the box and – Somebody on base. I'm trying to figure out what the mm-hmm. what the signal is, uh, what the what the wipe away is, and yep. all that. And you know, uh, you know, I, I loved it. Um, you know, I was a, a good player. I wasn't a great player, uh, but in Duluth is a challenge playing mm-hmm. baseball. You, <laughs> I bet. we're playing in the gymnasium right um, all year. I mean, that's our start, and we don't. You know, we have to drive about two hours to play the first game on grass. Mm-hmm. And that's the first time we touch grass is in our first game. And same thing at the University of Minnesota Duluth. You know, we were in the gymnasium. Batting practice was in the uh, the wrestling <laughs> gym. And we used, you know, like K2, they call them K2 balls. They're kind of same weight but sponge mm-hmm. uh, so no one got killed. But <laughs> uh, And then we got on a bus and drove to southern Minnesota and touched grass for the very first time and that was our first game and you know the next day it snowed hmm. <laughs> in southern minnesota so that's you know baseball in minnesota here so right cuz i've always you know i bring up the catcher point because i i i always think about that in your background and it probably is a result of my baseball background that you you do lead with that personality you know a catcher as the catcher's mask over over their face, right mm-hmm. there, but they're the field general. But sort of, uh, uh, you lead with modesty and humility, and you let kind of the starting pitchers be the face of the organization and, and call the shots and be the flash. And and you lead in that same way. You're you're always, you know, running down the line to back up the first sure. baseman, right? But you. You always you get juiced by the success of others. Is that yeah, accurate? Sure. You know, I've never, we've never had this conversation. No, we haven't. Yeah. So this is different. And I've I've never thought about it in those terms, but I I absolutely see it um, from that perspective because again, I'm not playing any of the other positions. The talent is out in the field. Uh, everyone needs to contribute. You need to allow them uh, to be successful. You need to give them the the practice and the, you know, impetus to be successful. You mm-hmm. need to be, be in the cage and you need to work hard. Um, all of those things I want to be, you know, I, I remember when I played, you know, you know, you, you, you hustled 
to the very end. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't care if it was the, you know, the first sprint or the last sprint. You know, I, I did want to be a leader. I was captain yep. of the team. Again, I wasn't the best player on the team. Um, there was, you know, five or six others who were really talented uh, individuals. We never won the city. We always finished second to Cloquet, mm-hmm. Minnesota, which they had a really great program. <laughs> and I, you know, I love their, uh, their team. They played ball the right way, but. Um, but if you think about like the baseball movies, Bull Durham, Major League. Oh, absolutely. Right. Bull Durham, the main character, Kevin Costner, catcher. Yes. Major League, the main character, Tom Berenger catcher yes they're not the best players on the team but they're the captains they're the central point you know you got nuclelouche and uh the bull durham right the the pitcher with major league talent that just needs to get his head on straight and you know uh same thing in uh major league you got the uh charlie sheen character the wild thing yes you got uh joe boo and um or pedro serrano and willie mays hayes and, and but the catcher is sort of orchestrating all these talents into a winning club. And that's that's how I've always – and like you said, we've never talked about yeah. this before, but um, from a parallel with a baseball team, if you think about Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, that's that's the style of leader you are. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, yeah, I feel that. the So then, you know, leap forward 50 years mm. here – and yeah, I don't, um, you know, at some level I recognize I, uh, you know, if I'm in DC or, you know, at a state council meeting where we bring all our volunteers, I realize I'm the kind of the face, I'm the face of the organization, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, I, I'm clear that I'm not the talent, right? We've got the Dave Nobsons in Washington, DC who understand that we've got the Bob St. Pierre's who are you know, beating the social media uh, flag and, you know, well, even we're elevating at so many levels in the organization. And, you know, my job is to make sure that I'm not the choke point of decision making. Um, well, even the way you think about local chapters, you know, they're the face. Yes, right in their own sure. community. It's not. It's not me. It's not Dave Nompson. It's not you. Absolutely. It's Scott Rawl in Nobles County. Yes. Right. It's, yes. It's it's all those folks out on the landscape that pheasants forever for the community. It's that face. Yes, and I love getting my one of my favorite questions, especially in the day. You know, I used to do thirty. 40 banquets a year along with the field reps. You know, we didn't have enough staff to cover these. And so I'd try to cover, you know, the Minnesota, Iowa's where we, we had, uh, where we couldn't have coverage. So I'm a director of finance, but I'm out there and I, I love the questions and I still get this to today sometimes where local members will say, so what do you do for a living? Mm-hmm. And I'll say, well, I'm the president and CEO of Pheasants Forever. Yes, we understand that, but what do you do for a living? <laughs> right, right. And so that's perfect. Right, mm-hmm. the 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 organization should be as big as their impact on the local community. Um, that's their vision, and the leadership in that chapter obviously understands the impact that they're having nationally. But those average members, um, you know, that's the perfect scenario that they know the money they're spending locally is going to, you know, maybe stay locally and go into a local program, 
Yeah, yeah. And it's a community organization, and, and that's the magic. That's empowering mm-hmm. our chapters. So uh, I want to go back to the early 80s just to – because we haven't talked about sort of your origin story on this podcast. And, you know, I, I know you've talked about it and other things, and, and, you know, it's been in the magazine to an extent. But I want to start with that that symbolism that happened to you on your way to your interview. Yeah, that was spooky. That was, I mean, really, it did. Um, so, so I'm a volunteer for a couple years with Jeff Finden. You know, a, a, a friend volunteered me mm-hmm. to help set up a new accounting system for this organization called Pheasants Forever. Um, and this is two, three years in. So, yeah, 80, this, 82 is the organization. So, this started. is probably like 85. Okay. You know, maybe 84. Anyway, I'm, I, I go meet. Uh, Jeff, along with this other volunteer, Dan Peterson, who we worked with in public accounting, he's one who volunteered me. We go up, set up this accounting system, um, and I start doing some pro bono, helping them set up. Uh, there, more chapters are rolling in. I think when I first met Jeff, there was 12 chapters. By the time you know a year goes by, they're at 50. Uh, so I'm, and this is the advent of computers is right on top of this thing. So we're going from pencil to, you know, setting up accounting systems and operating systems to actually produce financial statements for the chapters. And I'm doing this pro bono anyway. Um, and I did the audit for a year. And then all of a sudden I get a call one morning. Uh, that's uh, it's Jeff Finden, the CEO. And he says, you know, could you meet me tomorrow for breakfast uh, up in White Bear Lake at the Perkins and you know, I want to talk to you about a few things. And that's all the background he gives me. And it's like, yeah, no problem. So you didn't know you were going for an interview? No, no. It, in <laughs> fact, it wasn't an interview. I okay. mean, that's the bizarre thing. Okay. So, so I'm driving uh, from Minneapolis uh, to White Bear Lake, through downtown St. Paul, through Spaghetti Junction, mm-hmm. right in the heart of downtown St. Paul. And I'm just starting to do that turn north. Uh, on to 35. On to 35. And a rooster flies right over the top of the freeway. Huh. Beautiful rooster. Just, and it was like, wow, that was awesome, right? And I'm not thinking too much about that. Right. Right? Other than it's pretty cool. It, it's really out of place. Very. And so I pull up into Perkins and go in and I said, yeah, you wouldn't believe it. I just saw a pheasant right over the top of Spaghetti Junction, flew right over the top of my car. And he goes, yeah, there's, you know, down the railroad tracks there, and there's some grain elevators, you know, down there. Mm-hmm. And so the bird's down there. I was like, okay, that's interesting. And then he just, he goes, cuts right to it. He's got these stack of papers. And he says, so you didn't apply for the director of finance job. And I said, I didn't know you even posted that position. He said, so here's the deal. Take the job <laughs> or... And he handed me about six, seven inches of paper. It says, or you find the, the next director of, or the first director of finance, you know, either you take the job or you pick. Go and, through these resumes and right. find the winner. And uh, so I was taken back. So it wasn't an interview. It was, and I had. An ultimatum. An ultimatum, yeah. <laughs> and then it was like, okay, timeline went, <laughs> I mean, I've, and I had just, or uh, professionally, I was with a firm called, uh, KMG Maine Herdman hmm. and we were like the ninth largest accounting firm in the on the world mm-hmm. and we 
just had merged two months prior to that with Pete Marwick and to, to become today what is KPMG mm. and became the largest accounting firm on the planet for about two weeks before all the mergers took place. But anyway, moral of the story is uh, the practice, and I worked with small, medium-sized businesses, loved it. Um, and then when we emerged with Pete Marwick, it was clear if you weren't Pillsbury, General Mills, University of Minnesota, Kraus Anderson, right? If you weren't a large uh, Fortune, 500, Fortune company. 500 company or on that track, you weren't going to be there long. Or hmm. it, and regardless of how profitable that business portion was. Um, so it took me a while. It took me, uh, Jeff gave me about 30 days hmm. uh, to consider this, and I did accept the job. Um, it was a handshake. How old were you at this time? Oh, let's see. So I was, uh, let's see, my son was just born uh, the year before. Well, that year, in that year. So it would have been 87 hmm. that I took the job. So I don't know how old I'm. I'm 63 now. You do the math. <laughs> right. I gave up accounting in another <laughs> right? lifetime. So you're in your uh Late 20s, they, early 30s, right? Yeah, early right? 30s. Yeah, early 30s. Early right. 30s. So, um, but, the, you know, what was interesting was this was this was definitely a job hmm. at that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a change to leave public accounting, uh, to go to this nonprofit startup. And uh, yeah, obviously I knew Jeff. I knew the organization. You know, I liked what they did. I was a hunter. Um I, I, you know, I sure believed in their mission, but it was just a job. I, the handshake was I would stay for five years, uh, at least uh, build the accounting systems, build all of the other hmm. pieces that went with it. It was a very small team. I think there was probably a total of 12 of us. 12 employees. 12 employees at that time. Did um, you have to take a pay cut to take this job? No, I, did, I got a nominal raise. Huh. I got a nominal raise. Uh, I was in that accounting track i you know hadn't become manager yet right mm-hmm. i was a supervising senior which you know doesn't get you where you want to be mm-hmm. I mean, when i started in public you know i was only in public for seven years you know i was paid fourteen thousand two hundred dollars was my first annual salary wow and it you know it didn't crawl up you know that much mm-hmm. over those years but it, so you were but the trajectory, though, KPMG, I mean, you probably yeah, left yeah. some long-term so here's, money. So you know, it. and this is one of those touch points in the decision-making. Two, two important things. One was um, going through a tax season with the family. Um, you know, I had my, Marco was born in September. I go into a tax season, and I see him in the crib in the morning when mm-hmm. I leave for work, and I see him in the crib at night when I come home. And so there's that quality of life. Uh, but I, I don't know anything different. I love it. I'm right. I'm working my butt off, uh, and, and being successful there. And then when the decision is, do I stay or do I go to this other organization? So you do look at that projection. Okay. If I, of course, in your, you're in accounting, you want to be the partner, right? Mm-hmm. You want to go in that path. And I think about the, the people that I admired, um, and look at their history and their families, and a lot of them were disasters, personally. Hmm. Um, 
professional success stories. Very, and just the greatest people you could ever meet. And we still, you know, we're, we're really close. We get together once a year at an event. <laughs> it's our, actually, our 35th year. The Howler. Up. The Howler. And so, but uh, the the cost of that success hmm. was, you know, family challenges and problems that, you know, they had to fight through. Um, so what's my path? Is that where I really want to be? Mm. Um, and it wasn't. Um, I I could now put in as much or more time into Pheasants Forever, but I would make those decisions about when and where. Um, and so as I was, mm. you know, and I had our, our second child. And I know Wendy is from the Duluth area. Were you guys yes. high school sweethearts? No, we met uh, we met once in high school, but we really met in college. Okay. Um, so both. I didn't know she went to UMD as well. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's where she got her, her undergrad, and then she okay. went on to her master's program at the University of Minnesota. So when we got married, moved down in the mm. uh, spring of 80. So, uh, but, so that was different, you know, looking at your family. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the job part changed, I think, dramatically in about two years. You start hanging around with our chapter volunteers, um, our professional team, you know, the Rick Youngs and Dave Nobsons, and you saw the passion that they brought uh, to their work, and they rubbed off. I mean, it, it became, uh, at that point, uh, more than a job I could see you know, potentially a path forward. I mean, I wasn't going to be on a tractor planting trees or, um, you know, delivering that habitat, but I could sure help them uh, create efficiencies. We could, I I could Mm. see a path forward where this organization would be a differentiator. Right. Um, And so so that was, you know, I, I could see forward that this could be, a legacy for myself and my family. Hmm. Um, and it sounds corny, but, you know, I started to believe, mm-hmm. you know, in a big way. You, you mentioned um, a moment ago touch points, and that's one of the themes that I want to try to carry out through this conversation is touch points. Thing, it, it, you know, that's your vernacular. And mm-hmm. we, Howard, for listeners, Howard has a lot of Howardisms, <laughs> which, are, which are great because uh, it's endearing. But one of them is touch points, which means kind of a life-changing moment in time or something that uh, really impacted your decision-making process going forward. So, so we'll talk about those um, as we go through this sure. conversation. But I, I want to leap forward a little bit. Um, what folks might not know... Organization started in 1982, and here we are in 2020. In the entire history of this organization, there's been two presidents and CEOs, which I think is a testament to how amazing an organization this it really is. I mean, the stability to go from Jeff Finden to Howard Vincent, two CEOs right. th- through the entire duration uh, – um, tell the story of that process in slash 1999-2000 to take the reins from, you know, the, one of the founding people of this organization. And kind of did you feel – is there added gravity when you're grabbing the baton from, from Finden? 
And what was the interview process like? How did that whole thing transpire? Yeah, there was a, you know, a lot of thought for myself personally. Um, you know, and I do, I always try to think of two things, right? What's the most important thing for me personally, but then also what is the best thing for the organization itself? And, and you know, I've, I try to do that a lot from, you know, when I, when I recognized that this could be, you know, a life's work. Um, so every day I think about that. Um, and so Jeff Finden uh, announces that he's going to retire um, and he's fairly young in his career. His uh, wife um, had Huntington's disease and he wanted to spend more quality time with her. Um, so it was a thoughtful, it became, uh, we had the ability to have a thoughtful process. Um, the board of directors, uh, we had some very smart people on there. Uh, one of which at that moment, and this is, here's an individual who's a touch point, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Gordon Geyer from Michigan. Gordon, it was one of these really magic individuals who, if you met him in 10 minutes, you would feel you've known him your entire life. And he was former uh, president of Michigan State University, former director of DNR in Michigan, former director of agriculture in Michigan. Mm -hmm. and my joke with him is he couldn't keep a job to save his life, right? <laughs> I mean, this is really one of the unique individuals. Uh, he's our chairman at the time. Uh, the board of directors, the consensus around the table was, look, at we've, already, we've got Howard here. He's the guy. We can save a lot of time, energy, and money. Howard, let's just let's just go with it. We all agree. Hmm. And Gordon was incredibly smart and said, I agree with you. I think Howard is the person, but we need to do this search for Howard. And we're going to do a national search. And I believe Howard will come to the top. Uh, but if not, you know, we need to make the best decision for the organization, mm -hmm. not the best thing for Howard. And that actually turned out to be a tremendous thing for you. As Absolutely, well. and I, you know, when you know, there, of course, there's a little bit of a pushback, you know, internally, mm -hmm. right? Human nature to go. I oh, this. right. Well, well, I, I didn't know that at that moment, but I mean, so there was like a negative going. Okay, now does Gordon really believe in me? Does mm. the I mean the board believes in me, but they don't know any better, right? They don't know what that landscape looks like, um, but then that. You know, that muscle memory thing to go, okay, I know what the best thing for Howard is, and Gordon is absolutely right. This has to be the best thing for the organization. And they do a national search, and I think the magic in that process was of, I don't know how many applicants they had, I don't know, 50 or 60. Um, they narrowed it down to six for the first interviews, and we had second interviews. Four of those six were internal, hmm. right? So Dave Nobson, Joe Dugan, uh, Matt O'Connor, and myself. And there was consensus within the four of us that it didn't make any difference which one of us we were going to go forward. Um, there were board members who were saying, you know, this is a disaster. If one of them gets it, three are going to leave. Mm -hmm. um, and they didn't believe that, you know, we were in this together. Um, we shared information on... Uh, in the interviews, hmm. you know, like here's a tough question they're gonna hmm. run by you. Did and, you really? Yeah, absolutely. And, huh. um, so it was it was a, a, a 
you know, we felt real. I felt really good about it, and I know, uh, you know, the moral of the story was mm. all four of us stayed. Um, and three w- of you are still here. The only one that is is gone, sort of. Yeah, is Joe Dugan retired a couple years yeah. ago? But that's- so all of us have had you know twenty, thirty plus year hmm. runs here, um, and it's been a great team. And you know, I, there goes your baseball analogy, hmm. right? I mean, I get to you know come out from behind the plate and you know manage this team of you know really really incredibly talented people and. You know, that was magic, and, you know, we, we owe a great debt to, uh, you know, Dr. Geyer. Hmm. That was... So, you get hired. How does your life professionally and personally change when you are promoted to the president and CEO? Yeah, that's... Um, and, and there again, Gordon uh, helped me uh, with that transition. We, we talked on a regular basis. Um, so, I had a personality within the organization. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm the senior vice president, chief financial officer. Um, I was known to be stubborn. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> there was, there was, we did a, we went through a process of like a national uh, operational review of our board, of our, our team. And in this, uh, the executive team was given a, a sheet that said, here's your pros and cons, right? Mm-hmm. Here's who, here's who this Howard Vinson is. Here's his strengths. Here's his weaknesses. And one of the weaknesses in this was like bullet number five was can be stubborn. Hmm. And we come into this meeting to digest this, to review this at the very end of it. By the end of that meeting, the person who was uh, our moderator said, please turn to Howard's page, <laughs> bullet number five. We want to strike. Strike can be. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's a gospel truth. <laughs> struck. Uh, so th- that's surprising to me because here we are 2020, and that wouldn't be a trait that I would have characterized you as today. Yeah. So so here's the, this is, the again, the, you know, Gordon Geyer. So, so I had a role in mm-hmm. the organization, right? I was the devil advocate. So if we're going to. Pre-CEO. Pre-CEO, right? Yep. So we're, we have our exec team meetings and our managers meetings and, you know, we're, we're a growing organization. We're struggling because of the model itself, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the dog doesn't hunt. The, all the chapter money stays local and we've got to build this organization on a, on a string. And we had knockdown, drag out fights in these meetings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, screaming, hollering sometimes, but it was in the essence of the team. And mm-hmm. that was fine. Once the meeting was over and we, you know, had some consensus, we went forward. But I was the devil advocate. I would always, you know, everyone would say, you know, red, red, red. And I'd go, no, we've got to think about green here. Mm-hmm. And then that would start the fight. And in the end, we'd go, okay, it's red. Mm-hmm. We agree. We knocked all the corners off it. When I became CEO, Gordon said, you can no longer be that person. Mm right? You're going to now have to build consensus, right? Not be the devil advocate. Mm -hmm. You're going to, you know, I was the one that, um, if we had events, I'd be the first one at the event and I would, you know, whether it's a party or a banquet, I would close the banquet. Um, I was put on office events. Mm -hmm. Um, he says, now you're going to have to let somebody else do that. You can't be that person. You're going to have to take one step back. Um, you want to be approachable, but you can't be in the middle of it anymore. You're, mm. you're, this dynamic is changing. Um, and then along with that, um, 
in my reviews with our exec team, uh, somebody gave me a diamond, mm-hmm. and that diamond was uh, so in in their review. We'd say, you had a great year, here's what you're working on, this, and at the close, and I still do this, um, what else could I do for you? Or what's, you know, you should give me some critical review as the CEO, what I should be doing, what am I not doing? And uh, Joe Dugan gave me this in his review, and he said, you know what, Um, in our managers' meetings, in our executive team meetings, um, you're continuing to play this role of devil advocate, and you have the first opinion you're killing conversation, mm. right? So somebody will look at you. And so so Joe, the Joe Dugans know me and will push back, mm-hmm. at, which is perfect and right. fine. But there's some new faces there who look at you and go, look at you're the CEO. You've been here 20 years. Um, what would I add, right? And I'm not going to go against the CEO. So when Howard comes out and says it's red, everyone nods, you right. know, if they don't know me. And... Joe said, you've got to have the last opinion, not mm. the first opinion. And so I kind of took it at that moment uh, thoughtfully, went into like a week later, went into one of these meetings and went, okay, I'll play this, mm-hmm. right? But you know what? I have been here 20 years. I do know, have the breadth of the organization. I have the best information. I know it's going to be read. Mm-hmm. So, but I'm going to play, not the game, but I'm going to give everyone opportunity. Mm-hmm. So we go around the table and someone says, purple. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, that's actually better Hmm. than red. And we continue around. Somebody goes green. And I went, God, that is good. And then they get to me, and I get to say, you know what? Green is the best. And I get to do something else. I also get to um, let that person own that Hmm. and empower them, right? It doesn't have to be my idea. In fact, it's better if it comes from the team. Um, and so that instantly mm. that, you know, became a new, uh, approach for me to, you know, I don't have to be out front. Um, we've got the reason these people are on the table is that they are the talent. So let the talent surface, uh, let them own, uh, the decisions. Um, and that was, that yeah. was kind of magic. And, you know, that has paid off dividends a thousand times in, in, you know, 20 different ways at home. Um, yeah, that took me longer. <laughs> so I'm, it I'm, takes I'm us working, all I'm working on 40 years, right? We're coming up on 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. Which is wonderful. And I'll, you know, so I'm giving this to all the young listeners, married <laughs> listeners out there. You don't have to have an opinion about everything. Mm-hmm. Right. And it took me only about 35 years to come to that at home mm. that, you know, when, your spouse has an idea and they want to talk about something. You don't, ha- I don't have to be the devil advocate and figure out, you know, a better way or why it's, you know, not going to work or how it could work better. Um, listen, you know, and if it's an, something important mm-hmm. and a decision has to be made, then you sure want to jump in, but you don't have to have an opinion about everything. And uh, that's free. I'm giving that to everybody. Do you remember? Uh, okay. So, 2000, right? That's when you take January over. January 2000, yes. What was the first really hard decision that you had to make as president and CEO? Do you remember? Anything stick out? Yeah. I mean, so again, we're, we're evolving as an organization. The infrastructure is a challenge because we're in the red 
boy, you know, 10 months out of the year and we don't go green until, you know, May and June. Our June is our natural year end. And so we're having a hard time just existing, right? We have our head down. And then we recognize that we can't do it ourselves. And I think, you know, at that moment that we own all the passion in the conservation world, we own the best talent, and I, and I believe that today, but the myth was that no one else had that drive or that passion. And so when we lift our head up, and, and timing is everything, the, the, that 2000, the formation of the American Wildlife Conservation Partners. Um, Which is what? So that's made up of 50 of the largest wildlife organizations in the country. And at that moment, uh, what we agreed to in August of 2000 was there was about 20 of us who agreed, CEOs that agreed to get together uh, for three days, uh, sequester ourselves uh, out in Missoula, Montana, and talk about how we can work together more closely, whatever that might be. Um, So we had to leave, you know, check your egos at the door. And believe me, there were some egos there. And... Uh, get in that room and agree on what we could agree on and things we didn't agree on, we just put aside. Uh, so that allowed us to, what, what the great two pieces came out of that. One was uh, the document Wildlife in the 21st Century, which is a document we continue to uh, develop uh, for every sitting new sitting president. Hmm. And... Uh, it's 12, 14 of the most important things in wildlife conservation that we think we need to move forward in this new administration. Hmm. Uh, and then also the work we do uh, daily out in Washington, D.C., where the Pheasants Forever is the face of the Conservation Reserve Program, part of that uh, farm bill. Dave Nobson's the voice and the face of that, and thereby Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. When we do give testimony, we will circulate that with the other 49 organizations. They will sign on our testimony. And instead of bringing 140,000 voices to the table, we're bringing something like 6 million mm. with all of them signing on. And they, they have to opt in. It's not automatic. Uh, and then likewise, if it's a forestry issue and if it's, you know, the Rough Grouse Society or the Elk Foundation who's, uh, the expert in that area mm-hmm. will sign on their letter. Right. So Wetlands and Ducks yes. Unlimited. Yeah, and, and <clears throat> on a hundred different mm-hmm. bills and issues. Not And not everything's our issue, and so we don't sign automatically on anything. It's thoughtful. We look at the risk assessment. So those two magic things happen. But the, the moral of the story was all of a sudden I, I learned that, you know, in phraseology, even at the time would be, I wonder what the Ducks Right, and there could even been a little edge to that. I wonder what the ducks are doing, or the elk guys, or the turkeys, and then you get to meet their leadership and some of their talent, and they're just as passionate about their organizations and their missions. Mm. And now it becomes, I'm going to call Dale, right? I'm going to call Greg. I'm going to call Becky, right? Becky, and you know, have this conversation about how we can work together. We become more transparent. Um, we see. We recognize that we're not really competing for those same faces and those same checkbooks. Mm. We're really not. I mean, they're, it's differentiated enough. Um, and even if we have crossover, that's not a bad thing either. So um, so those things happened. And there was another 
opportunity in there when we kind of lifted our head up another partner and it was uh, becoming an outdoors woman mm. and Christine Thomas and Diane Lewick uh, were at the University of Wisconsin Stephen Point and they had built this program called becoming an outdoors woman and I thought it was a great right mm-hmm. um, we, we, we're, we've, we're transitioning from a stag event to more family events how do we engage families women if we get, we we knew early on if we can get you know mom we'll get the kids. This two thousand and three ish. No, this is actually right right in, in two thousand two. Okay. Right, okay. all these things are kind of happening, and again we had our head down, uh, but our infrastructure is improving, and we actually get to lift our head up and say, how do we do this better? Mm-hmm. Right. What are the opportunities? Yes, to grow? exactly. Um, so. I drive down to Stevens Point, uh, meet with uh, Christine and Diane, and I went in with a real male testosterone, you know, business background to say, okay, what's your program? You know, what's your goals? You know, what's your budget? How can we help? You know, I love the program. I'd like to buy it you know, uh, pay a royalty for using it. And they're look at me, looking at me really confused and and I'm now taken back because the first time, first time I've met these two individuals, mm-hmm. and I'm, I said, so, you know, how much would you charge me to use these programs with our chapters? And they said, well, no, you can have it. And I said, thank you, but you know, so how much though? Mm-hmm. And they said, you're not, you're not listening. You can have it. You know, it doesn't cost you anything. We'd be excited if your chapters took this. And I said, well, how are you going to build your program? How are you going to make this bigger? Obviously, you need revenue streams. And, you know, what's your budget? And, again, they're looking at me like I'm stupid. And I, and I am. <laughs> uh, they said, you're kind of missing the point. Huh. And they said, and then they told me a story. They said, uh, we've had the, one of these conversations before. It was with another NGO, right, another conservation group Mm -hmm. they came in asked uh they said they wanted to buy our program outright take it over and deliver it within their organization uh and we said boy you know a lot of partners helped build this and our goal was to build something that anyone could take and own whether it's department of natural resources the states any ngo anyone who would go and introduce women into the outdoors that's why we built it. And this other organization made a statement in there that said, fine, we're going to build our own program and we're going to, you know. Bury you. Bury you. Hmm. And they looked at that per, And so now I'm mad that someone would say this to them, mm-hmm. right? And they still, and I still don't get it, right? And they <laughs> see that. They're going, Howard, you continue to miss the point. The point is we smiled and said that would be awesome. Hmm. If, if you could take our mission and do it bigger than better than we ever could imagine, that would be awesome. Mm. And, that, and I'm, getting, I'm getting chills right now mm-hmm. saying it because at that moment it slammed me that, simply put, their mission was more important than their brand mm-hmm. or the energy it took to put into it and the time and the mission and that product was the most important thing. And I got to drive home another, it's like three, four hour drive home. And I got to think about that. Hmm. Um, and that changed, you know, my, at least my dynamic mm-hmm. as I viewed the organization. 
that the mission has to be more important and we can't be proprietary about the name that this is all about pheasants forever, quail forever. Right. This is about the mission and what we're driving. Uh, and that really opened, I think all of our, well, in, in how we uh, started strategically thinking about the organization and the mission, um, that changed the dynamic. Mm-hmm. What other space could we deliver resources in that we haven't? Um, there's empty chairs around the table, um, and that opened up opportunities in the future. And if we think about the Farm Bill Biologist Program, NRCS's um, mission, right, and they're going to help us fund exactly what we want to do, but we get to do it together, and we can give them recognition for what they did. And then AWCP, all of our names get to be on that letter, and we can let somebody else be the lead and mm. that's okay as long as we get the punch that we want. And then, you know, even Quail Forever, um, to look differently at a resource and say we could bring more energy, time, and dollars and impact if we participated in this um, and found other partners who are willing to do that. The Sage Grouse Initiative, the Lesser Prairie Chicken Initiative, Monarchs, Butterflies, yeah. right? Soil. Um, so you're going right to where I want to go, but I want to spend a little time on a few of these things. Sure. Um, farm bill biologists. Yes. So fast forward to today, <clears throat> and uh, we've got rough numbers, 400 employees. 70% of those employees are biologists, have degrees in biology. Yes. And the vast majority of that 70% are farm bill biologists, uh, folks that work in USDA service centers that are um, funded through state and federal grants and help landowners, farmers, ranchers enroll in conservation programs. Uh, as far as I I know, and I don't, I'm not 100% sure on this, but that concept originated between Pheasants Forever and USDA, or were there other organizations actually the, doing Yeah, it? the first pilot program actually came out of Wisconsin. Uh, with Wisconsin DNR and uh, their private lands program. So they asked if we would house a, uh, a summer intern that would go around and sign up using the USDA toolbox, right? So whether mm. that was CRP or uh, other, other sign-up programs. Sure. Um, and what they found was that this uh, young fire eater, <laughs> right. Another Howardism. Fire, fire eaters. Yep. Uh, so this young uh, gentleman went out and knocked uh, knocked on doors of farms and producers, uh, looked at conservation programs on how they could uh, add those add that conservation to working farms. Anyway, the that individual in like six months had signed up more program acres than the entire NRCS office the entire year hmm. total. Because they were focused on conservation and unencumbered by being, quote-unquote, a government employee? Yeah, I would say we got to focus on the the tools that would work for conservation in that space. Hmm. And so if you think about an NRCS employee, they've got, a, you know, 150 different programs, and you've got to be proactive. You've got to walk in the door, and you don't know what you – a producer doesn't know what they don't know. Hmm. I mean, there's 150 programs – and that NRCS employee has, you know, a thousand producers in their geography. Mm. They they don't have the resources or the time or opportunity to talk to the landowners. So we were proactive, and so we were knocking on doors and saying, "Look, you got this great production, but you have a 
river or a stream running through your property, you know, we could put in a program and the feds would pay you X number of dollars uh, to protect water, build soil. In fact, we didn't use those terms back then. I mean, mm-hmm. it was kind of a wildlife focused. focused. And so, but it was so impactful. They said, well, next year we want two of these, mm. you know, and then could we have a full-time person? Well, that quickly evolved into, okay, this could be a new tool for our organization. And we did sit down with NRCS. Uh, they saw what was happening and we added positions out in South Dakota. Mm. So, you know, these states are always looking over somebody else's shoulder, you know, somebody else's state line, right. county border. Um, and we had, we agreed to have one pilot, uh, and I can't remember, what, so it's 15, programs about 15 years old. So 2003, yeah, 2003, um, we added a position in South Dakota full-time before the year's out in that pilot program, we had four. Hmm. And it's just, you know, multiplied by, by, right, we're at 250 farm Mm -hmm. bill biologists right now. Uh, NRCS funds about 50, 60% of those uh, dollars, uh, our chapters put in money, Department of Natural Resources in each of those states puts in money, um, soil water conservation districts. I mean, in, I think we've got two and a half granting authorities for every position we have on the ground. So mm. again, we're, we're back to, we can't do this ourselves. We can help other organizations and agencies deliver their mission consistently with ours. And I think one thing that's been, uh, consistent is we haven't had to change who we are or what we do um, and, th- and that's a challenge hmm. right when you when you do have success everybody would love you to help them mm-hmm. as well which is kind of a natural human instinct who can get the work done well let's go to pheasants forever and you know there's all the jokes out there right we should be you know butterflies forever we should be turtles forever mm-hmm. we should be you know name the species wing warblers sure yep um, and again, then, then that goes to, this doesn't have to be about pheasants forever, right? We can help with an initiative and drive an initiative without it being our brand. Right. Which leads to SGI. Yes. Yeah. And Sage how did Grouse. that happen? So, so Sage Grouse initiative is SGI. Yes. So that's a little more convoluted in that um, that happened with a handshake in a bar in Kansas. <laughs> so I was, uh, so at the moment I'm sitting, uh, um, well, uh, yeah, I, I was invited down to Kansas to hunt uh, Fort Riley. Hmm. Uh, they were, and TRCP was shooting, Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partners was shooting a TV show they had at the moment. And they wanted to have me come down and talk about pheasants and quail and we were going to shoot a piece, and the chairman of their board, uh, his name was Jim Range, mm. and George Cooper was the CEO at the time. Uh, they were down there for the shoot as well. Um, we do shoot this TV show, and then in the one evening in the bar, uh, and there was alcohol was consumed mm. in great amounts, and then the shoe falls. And when they dropped it, it was really apparent as to why I was invited down there. Hmm. And Jim Range, you had to know him. He was a force in Washington, D.C., lobbyist. Uh, He helped write the Clean Water Act when he worked uh, for a staffer on the Hill. Um, Just, 
an incredible force and uh jim and, and i can't say the words that jim shared i don't think but it was you're the only sobs who can get work done and sage grouse and prairie grouse need your help and you're the only ones and i explained our model and explained look we don't have enough dollars in the organization to do the things we want to do for our resource um, and it was you know pheasants and quail pretty pretty locked in at that moment and he said so if i got you the resources you would do this and i said sure get me a million bucks and we'll you know kind of off the cuff and he says okay i'll go get you a million bucks and he put his hand out and we shook hands hmm. and um uh, he died uh, within a year uh, of cancer, mm-hmm. young. Um, never had a chance to get us the million bucks. But I shook his hand. And then like a year or two goes by. I'm sorry. No, I, I, okay, I, so, I know Jim and I know yeah, his. So a year or two goes by and an opportunity presents itself. and I And I had done... Uh, my legwork and my background on this sage, this sage grouse initiative, hmm. um, an eleven state region in the northwest United States. Um, this bird is going to be listed as an endangered species. Um, the number of agencies and partners that have come together to try to uh, get this bird back on track um, was amazing. Uh, but again, we don't have the resources. But then some really smart people within our organization and uh, at NRCS said, look it, you've got this farm bill biologist model where if we can put boots on the ground out in that range and do the things we need to do, this could be a game changer. And there was, you know, not only did we identify a million dollars, we were identifying probably $3 million mm-hmm. through NRCS with boots on the ground. Um, the science behind this, Dave Noggle at Missouri. Mm-hmm. Of, uh, Tim uh, Griffiths. Yeah, Tim Griffith. I mean, just this incredible group of talented people who were just day in, day out engaged in this. Um, we were able to step in, and I got to honor Jim Range by you know honoring the handshake that we mm. would do what we could when we could, um, and that was magic. And um, and then we were able to kind of look at this tool, look at the, again strategically thinking uh, a map of the United States, and we use the term you know where's the white space, where's resources that need help that we could deliver our talent set, uh, being a fiscal agent, managing boots on the ground. Uh, bringing in other partners that had never been at the table, and we'd never been together with them. In fact, you know, we were somewhat, you know, maybe even a, at a moment in time diametrically opposed, are hmm. now working together really closely. Um, and then we roll that into the Lesser Prairie Chicken Initiative mm-hmm. down in the southeast. That's the five-state region. You know, similar model. Not southeast, but southeast oh, sorry, of south, yeah. Sage Grouse area. Yeah, yeah. So you're down in the southwest. Arizona's, Kansas, Texas. and Oklahoma. Yeah, yep. And, you know, in, then in that window, too, is Quail Forever. Mm-hmm. Right? And there's a demand from individuals, legislators on the Pheasants Forever model, mm-hmm. right? 
having local chapters raise money locally and then control that money locally. Yep. And how come we can't have that? And there was no other organization like that. Um, so we, you know, we, we jumped in and, and we continue to look at this landscape like that. The person, the gym range of Quail Forever, and just from a chronology perspective, Quail Forever started, the discussion, our discussions really began probably in 03, were in earnest in 04, and we launched Quail Forever in August of 2005. SGI was a few years after that, yes. but so we're bouncing around a little yeah. bit, but that's okay. Because the, the person that I think about when you start talking about gym range with SGI that catalyst was Kim Price. Yes. So tell folks who Kim Price was and, and his influence on the creation of Quail Forever. Sure. Uh, Kim Price uh, was out of Alexander City, Alabama. He was the owner and original publisher of Covey Rise back when it was a newspaper quality. Right, tabloid. Yeah, tabloid. And so, um, But just an incredible amount of passion and... It was our, he was our first board member from the Quail Range mm -hmm. uh, and was really, you know, Bob and myself had met him at sh one of the shot shows, uh, yeah. sports hunting and outdoor trade shows, and had some quality time with him uh, to talk about whether maybe Covey Rye should be the, uh, even the, the magazine yep. production. Or even the name. Right, yeah. And so we, uh, we actually spent a lot of time with him. Uh, in his space, uh, looked at their budget, considered buying that, again, buying mm -hmm. that product. Uh, it, it didn't make sense uh, from a financial standpoint. And at the same time, um, he gets it and he gets us and he gets, I mean, he's all in. Mm -hmm. Forget about selling, you know, he'll continue to run his publication the way he wants, but he's going to help us deliver Quail Forever in a, in a big way. So I, I think it's similar in time clouds memory a little bit but i think we're having these conversations with kim and then there was that um stuttgart arkansas gathering with bill palmer and don mckenzie to talk about potential creation of quail forever yeah at that point we're we're mining all information i mean we're trying to identify the people that who live in that space who know that space you know recognize we're a you know, 25-year organization out of St. Paul, Minnesota, our knowledge base of really what that resource needs. Um, and, and let's say even from the beginning, we were focused really on um, the southeast quail, right? Bob mm -hmm. White quail is, is the strength, you know, from uh, Florida, Georgia, all the way into Kansas. Uh, but we're not thinking too much about western quail at the moment. But so we're mining anyone who could share – uh, and so, yeah, Bill, Dr. Bill Palmer out of Tall Timbers, uh, Don McKenzie, uh, who was with, at that moment, is with the Wildlife Management Institute, but pulling together the Southeast uh, Quail uh, Initiative. Uh, God, I'm trying to think who else. And, well, uh, Wes Berger, I think, was Sure, there. out of Mississippi. And, yep. um, you know, just these really talented, knowledgeable people. Uh, and we, and of course... At the point we recognize that we can be additive to this initiative resulted from the formation of the Northern Bobwhite Conservation Initiative, MBCI, where 
they had coalesced a working quail plan and engaged roughly 25 states that would help fund this initiative and each of those states would own their piece of the plan and deliver it because prior to this we kind of felt like boy if you know we've seen the track of quail Mm -hmm. declining and we don't see anyone else jumping in and if the department of natural resources aren't going to even jump into this what makes us think we could but at that point where they coalesce all that energy and everyone agrees that we are going to move quail forward it is going to be important it is going to be a that poster child for what's happening on that landscape that now we could be a part of that right we don't have to own it drive it but we could be a part of it and it could be meaningful and so that was that shift from can we be impactful right Mm -hmm. and that was that was critical at that time and then the fun starts (laughs) do you want to go there (laughs) well yeah i mean folks probably have heard the name quail unlimited they haven't been around in a while right but um you know we had some frank discussions about I, I don't know, lack of a better term, merger. Yes, no, it's absolutely right? a merger, yeah. So so I'll do this as quickly as yeah, that, reasonably possible. So we meet like in uh, at SHOT Show with their CEO who I had gotten to know and we had a great relationship, uh, Rocky Evans, and uh, we met at SHOT Show over lunch and he their organization was struggling. We, I knew that looking at their tax returns, their mm-hmm. 990s, I saw their path forward uh, was going to be a disaster. Um, I said, you ever thought about doing this together? Um, that conversation over the next year led to meetings with their some of their board um, agencies. We shared information. And at one point I thought this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. We, we would have, I mean, the numbers that I crunched would have said we would have organizationally saved you know three four hundred thousand dollars in duplicate you know by merging our membership they would have stayed quail unlimited uh rocky still would have been the ceo Um, they would have adopted our model of leaving 100 percent of the money local Uh, at that moment they were like 50 50 so 50 100 percent of the money came into their national they sent 50 percent of it back uh, and then those chapters were supposed to go out and do good work. Uh, but at the end of it, so the exactly one year later, we're back at SHOT Show. So I want to kind of ink the deal and say, let's do this and let's move forward. And he says, nope, we're not going to do it. And he chose not to do it for personal reasons, um, had nothing to do with the organization. Um, what I got to share with him at that moment was, you know, I have to deliver an organization to help quail and I got to have that ready in May. This is January. So Mm -hmm. we think it should be you guys, but I get it if you don't. Um, Because our board was ready to jump in. Oh yes. Yeah. We were, we were going to have, there was demand from our board. There was demand from state agencies. We had folks ready to sign up uh, chapters. We had corporate partners that said, Hey, this, this pheasant model is terrific. Right. Let's bring it to the quail range and have an impact on habitat. So we instantly, um, so we went into the May meeting with this quail forever. Mm -hmm. Um, I won't go into the, well, we became enemy number one from quail unlimited standpoint. 
Um, and, and it was, you know, from if you think about nationally and all the NGOs and how we work well together, mm -hmm. uh, we don't step on each other. But this was perceived as, you know, breaking that model. And now we're stepping into somebody else's territory. Um, we were clear that we would never uh, contact a chapter outright. But if the phone rang, we would answer it. Mm -hmm. And but what happened in the end is exactly what you know, we foresaw, which is they went bankrupt. And I mean, that was going to happen. You know, if we merged, I think we, I, I do believe we saved them, saved that resource. Uh, but the fact is they chose for personal reasons. I mean, really, truly personal reasons, not organizational. Um, it became a disaster. Um, in the meantime, we're, uh, I get another call. And this is another year, this maybe a year, two years later from uh they had fired yeah they rocky did, i think it's maybe two ceos yeah, later right i get a call from the interim ceo that says um he introduces himself on the phone says i want to apologize for what we have said and done uh to quail forever um and again i don't know this person from anybody and i well that's nice thanks and he said well here's why he says i was given this laptop that used to be Rocky's and on that was a file with all of your communications, hmm. right? Certified hmm. letters. Um, and he said, we were told something 180 degrees different at hmm. the board level. Hmm. We were told you were going to gut the organization, fire all the employees, you know, just take it over outright um, and here we have, you know, kind of sophisticated plans of how we're going to merge, how everyone's staying. And now, we, now we'd now we like to talk. Uh, we, uh, myself and our chair at that time, uh, flew down, uh, met with them, uh, talked. Uh, they were in bankruptcy. I mean, they were already a million and a half in the hole. With, uh, they didn't even have financial statements or anything like that. I actually helped them pull a balance sheet and income statement together to see what was there. Mm -hmm. um, and in the end, we agreed to um, essentially just buy the assets. And the assets was their name. Mm -hmm. I mean, truly, Quail Unlimited and their membership list. And their logo. And their logo. Mm -hmm. And then um, we kept uh, three, of the, three or four of the employees on. So just to be clear, we did not buy their organization. We no. bought three assets. Three assets, yes. Name, logo, and the database of members. Right. For um, some nominal dollars mm -hmm. to allow them to pay their payroll taxes. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that goes away. And now it takes us, the, the, the damage that they did in our landscape um, not only in the quail range, but across non other nonprofits, took us ten years to mm -hmm. get through the mud and the chaff. Before we, 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 you know, we were starting chapters, having some success, but um, our partners, even good partners like NRCS or state DNRs in the northern tier, doing great things. Uh, the, those southern states. Um, uh, would not talk to us, would not, they imagined we were the same organization that just went away. And again, the damage and the promises that were made 
Um, but it took us 10 years mm -hmm. uh, and before we hit the tipping point and then really have just exploded in this last five years. Mm -hmm. um, just some incredible work that's gotten done, incredible partners. Um, so we've gotten through that mm -hmm. um, and we're... Yeah, we, we stagnated at uh, kind of a 12,000 member organization for QF for, like you say, about a decade. Yes. And um, in the last five years, particularly the last three years, you know, we're, we're climbing a thousand a month right now. Right. You know? And we added, you know, uh, over a hundred employees that are in that quail range who are doing great stuff. Um, and then even you know, there, if I look back and what was maybe the saddest thing for me was the chapter, the quail unlimited chapters that were out there mm. still existed. Um, they had money in the bank and, um, again, we never, um, um, we never had contacted the chapters to switch them over. But if the phone rang, we did answer it. When we bought the assets and the membership list and kept those employees on, um, the, the goal was to bring those chapters or start Quail Forever chapters mm -hmm. with their contacts. And in the end, the Quail Unlimited chapter said, well, what do we do with the money? Let's bring the money and start the new chapter. And we said, no, that becomes a merger. Mm -hmm. um, spend it on the mission. habitat. Mm -hmm. And they went, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. They had no idea what to do with their money. So we had, we started connecting them with the, you know, Georgia department of natural resources and mm -hmm. fund the money, fund a fire burning rig or fund a youth initiative. I mean, we had to, we wanted them to spend those monies out. And the fact that they just didn't know what to do with their money was really disappointing. Well, um, and the other piece that you made the investment, the commitment, when we acquired that list of names, you covered, we covered membership in Quail Forever for a full year. Yes. Uh, magazine subscriptions, stickers, cards, no revenue from right. the, those folks, but you made a commitment to keeping them as Quail Forever members or transferring them to Quail Forever members for a full year without any revenue coming in, in the hopes that that audience would uh, see the difference and, and right, get connected. Right. And it, it, it took a while. I think in the end we maybe brought 20 oh, committees, you know, over to the Quail Forever side. Um, I think they had projected they could, you know, there was 150 chapters mm -hmm. or something like that, and we knew they didn't. I mean, I can look at the financial statements. And right. you, can, you can do the math. But anyway, in the end, um, just clearing that landscape uh, making it obvious as to what we do, how we do it. You know, you don't have to talk to anybody in this headquarters. Go talk to the other volunteers in the 500 pheasant chapters mm -hmm. and the model uh, that they live and exist under. Um, so, um, again, we're, we're, we're past that. We're incredibly excited what's happening in the quail range. Uh, and it is the broad quail range right now. It's, you know, we're looking at western quail whether it's Valley, California, Merns, mm -hmm. you know, Gamble, Scalies, uh, we're, we're in that space, uh, and there's great opportunities ahead. So uh, we could talk for hours because there's, there's a wealth of knowledge, but I want to go to um, signature component of the organization, um, Conservation Reserve Program. Mm -hmm. We've touched upon it a little bit, but our organization started in 82, CRP, came into existence on December 23rd, 1985, when President Reagan signed it into, into law. So we've tracked 
the history of both CRP and Pheasants Forever have tracked very closely together. You've been intimately involved in every single farm bill since the existence of CRP. Hit some of the high points and low points of of your memory of, you know, I I know when I've talked with Dave, you know, there's moments, and Dave Nompson, our government affairs guy, like, he he uses phrases like not another acre, not another dollar that maybe was the low point when he thought it was going to disappear in 92-ish. Yes. Uh, what what do you remember about the history of CRP and something that quote unquote a touch point for you as it relates to CRP and our our organization? So if you think about you know the original chapter model that chapters are going to raise money locally and they're going to spend money locally. In fact, you know we kind of made a mistake coming out the shoot by saying the dollars will stay local, right? Raise mm-hmm. money local, dollars will stay local. Chapters took that literally, which means they wouldn't spend it outside their county border. Mm-hmm. Um, which doesn't, which is okay if you live in Knuckles County, Nebraska, but when you live in Metro Detroit, sure, you, we'd like them to have a little bit broader view of the world. Right. And well, the challenge there is, you know, we grow, we continue to grow chapters, we're growing mission, but we become static at about two to 300,000 acres annually. Mm-hmm. And that's now the new strategic discussion to say, is that who we're going to be? Uh, we're never going to be a thousand chapters. We're never going to, you know, that number is two, 300,000 under this model. We're not going to break 500,000 at best. And we know we're going backwards, hmm. right? So we're going to have, if we stay the same, we're going to, we're not going to have the impact that we think we can or should. So what are those other tools out there? So kind of redoubling our efforts and recognize that if it costs at that moment in time, if we were spending an, enti- an entire budget of, let's say, 3 to $5 million to get that 300,000 acres, Boy, if we put time and energy into D.C., measured at that moment in two $300,000, we could get a 40 million acre CRP mm. toolbox, mm. right? And so that's that different dynamic. How do we take this organization to a different level? How do we play in different space, right? We we bring on Dave Nobson, who's got some you know passion and some expertise in that area, and we go into D.C. to be the honestly, to be the face of CRP and fight that battle. And if you think about that first, really, that farm bill, I mean, there's just a paragraph in there that says they have to consider wildlife, mm-hmm. right? And there's no money toward it. I don't even know that wildlife was mentioned in the first, yeah, was I, it the first two bills that didn't show up until 96? Yeah, I think you're right. So, so, But that was the battle, right? right. We want to just add wildlife to the, you know, formula. Benefits. Yeah. Yeah. And... So that's been the battle, and we've learned from that. So the highs, you know, a program that, you know, is what, 39.8 or 6 million acres um, are now out there on the landscape that expands our toolbox, um, that allows our, you know, future farm bill biologists mm-hmm. to go deliver the programs at the local level. The things we learn is the no matter how tough the battle in Washington, D.C., uh, fight for a piece of the pie, um, it's grueling. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I so I came on in 
you know, I didn't go out to DC until 2000, mm-hmm. right? Dave mm-hmm. took me out there and introduced me and you, I start learning that world and have a much greater appreciation for people who work in that space. Mm-hmm. And, uh, then, you know, the law, the lows, I mean, that program, you know, deteriorating down to 24 million, mm-hmm. um, you know, and we've, in the 2014 farm bill, it 14, went down. which was supposed to be the 2012 farm bill, right. right? Took two years to even get that through. And so now how do you weigh success and failure? Your mm-hmm. program has just gone down to the lowest point, 24 million acres. And at the same time you got the program, right? Cause there was, again, people saying we don't need this program anymore. Um, corn for a moment in time was at $8 a bushel mm. instead of $3 a bushel. We'll never need CRP again. And of course, the pendulum two swings. Sure, the pendulum swings the other way, and now we're back to, you know, three dollar fifty cent corn, and farmers aren't making any money. You know, in this year, they're losing money every bushel they grow uh, of corn mm. and soybean. Mm. Um, so there is an incredible demand out there, and you know that's the the moral of the story is you're always going to fight the fight, right? There's no war to be won. Mm-hmm. Um, Whatever you have, you're going to have to fight either to keep it or to grow it, uh, and that's uh, it's ongoing. We're trying to take that approach on Farm Bill and look at other tools in Washington, D.C., the Transportation Bill. And for the first time uh, a year ago, we were able to add a wildlife-friendly phrasing on uh, roadsides across our interstate systems, right? That's where Farm Bill and the Conservation Reserve Program started, right? Mm. Can we get the wording? Can we get people to understand that our roadsides could be, you know, a great avenue for monarchs and pollinators and other ground-nesting birds, right? Yeah, because I think there's some data, ducks and pheasants, like 65% of them, um, nests are happen within those roadsides, right. those corridors, because in a lot of places... That's, that's all that's left. That's what's there. Right. And so, you know, looking, again, looking at the the landscape differently um, and again we don't have to change who we are or what we do um, we just uh, need to be and I, lo- I love the word being relevant mm-hmm. right we can we're relevant beyond the hunting shooting community mm-hmm. um, and in the past I would have said look at we don't again we don't have enough dollars and resources to talk outside that perfect target that hunter that shooter what makes us think we can talk to anyone else and then really the evolution of social media has allowed us to you know slice this message a hundred different ways and talk to people who maybe never will pull a trigger or go afield but that water and the work we do on water is critically important and monarchs pollinators uh, and and now this new evolution into precision agriculture and sustainability mm-hmm. you know at the corporate board level is going to drive benefits for wildlife and conservation so so our definition of when we say conservation on that corporate side they would say and, and even the producer side they would say sustainability but those two things are exactly the same and some of the partners we're working with on sustainability initiatives are Land of yeah. Lakes. Land of Lakes, John Deere, Climate, Purina, um, Purina um, Monsanto. And, of course, you go, you go. Climate is a precision ag tool, which is owned by Monsanto, which is owned by Bayer, mm. right? These are the largest, uh, Lyle and Tate. And, and, and then they go to the big boardrooms, um, truly. Uh, and sustainability um, 
decisions are being made there and driven down into the ground. So Coca-Cola will and has already uh, identified 1.5 million acres of corn that will be grown sustainably, and that's the corn they'll use for their uh, corn syrup, for their product, um, and that'll expand. Um, Campbell Soups is growing sustainability in wheat um, for 50% of the wheat that goes in goldfish crackers, hmm. right? So, and these are, this is, they're, not, they're not buying green, they're delivering green. They're, these have to have conservation plans, they have to have uh, water, and this isn't the same thing. It's not a journey, it's a destination. So they have to improve their sustainability on an ongoing basis with real metrics. And so, and we'll be a part of that conversation. Um, and the, the purpose of being a part of that conversation is to, as, you, as you've pointed out a couple times, get wildlife as part of the vernacular of sustainability. Yes. Right? Yes. So if you think, you know, in this precision egg world, uh, instead of having producers, and this is brand new, really, I mean, within two years here, Producers have historically, obviously, looked at their farms as one income. So this is what I made on my farm this year. I'm either going to smile or I'm going to cry. Um, now they have the ability and the tools that are on that is on their equipment right at this moment that they can look at every square meter of their farm and see where that meter made them money or where they actually lost money. And then they have the ability to plant or apply or harvest exactly meter by meter. So mm -hmm. that tractor can move down the field and either deploy seeds or not deploy seeds on a meter by meter basis. And same thing as it uh, goes back over it, you know, whether it's, you know, two weeks later to apply uh, fertilizer or nitrogen or whatever those uh, needs are of that ground, same thing. It can drop it, deploy it or not in a meter by meter um, and then the harvest, when that happens, um, can tell them exactly where they made money and where they didn't. And there's tools out there, for example, with the under Lando Lakes, it's called Truterra Insight Engine. Not only will it tell them uh, their return on investment on that acre or that, that meter, um, it'll also look at the environmental impact and say, look, at because you did no strip, or mm -hmm. no-till, you saved X amount of soil from running off. You sequestered X amount of carbon. And these are going to be meaningful uh, data points for us to communicate to producers who should be looking at this, you know, not only from an economic decision, but we think there will be another product to sell let's say it is carbon, mm -hmm. right? They'll be able to sell those carbon, that's carbon sequestration to others. So there's another industry that will evolve from this and that's coming. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how fast a track that's coming, but so this is, uh, and so here's my soundbite on that. If we think that the farm bill allows us to talk to all of 10% of the producers out there on the landscape, right? I mean, it's a $30 billion conservation program, the single best thing we've had on the planet ever for conservation and farmland, $30 billion, and we're still only talking to 10% of them. Hmm. Precision agriculture and the economic decision-making of what they're 
uh, where they're deploying their resources on those farms will allow us to talk to the other 90%. Mm-hmm. So as an organization, if we're impacting 1 million or 1.5 million acres annually, and that's with 10%, right. what could we be beyond that? And again, this doesn't have to be about pheasants forever, but if those producers would get on on board and they're coming, right, we're at this point right now where it's thought leaders. Mm-hmm. Um this is going to happen. There's, this is going to be bigger than a ripple effect. So we've, we've t- hit on touch points throughout this. And in, in this whole realm of sustainability, I perceive your touch point to have taken place at the South Dakota Corn Growers. Uh, yeah, annual. absolutely. Is that, yeah. T- tell listeners what happened and why that was a, a memorable moment in the evolution of our organization diving into the sustainability realm. Sure. So... You know, we we had just walked into the precision agriculture discussion. Um, we're just learning about this. And this is this goes about two, back about two years. Um, one of our former Farmville biologists, Jim Ristow uh, from South Dakota, uh, took a new position as the conservation uh, director, I think, for yeah. South Dakota corn. Yes. So, if you think about the South Dakota. Uh, Corn Association, it's a, a trade group, right? Um, they Their job is to, you know, grow as much corn as they can. They get a nickel a bushel, and then they go find markets and, you know, sell that, their commodity for a trade group. So my ignorant perception is they could care less where corn comes from. As long as they get their bushel, they're going to get their nickel, whether it was grown efficiently, effectively, or not. Um, but Jim Ristow says, you know what, you need to sit down with their CEO, uh, Lisa Richardson. And it's like, well, sure, yeah, I'm willing to do that. I don't, I don't think she's going to want to sit down with me. And he goes, no, she doesn't. But I'm making a case that it's important. And so we're diametrically appro- opposed, you know, mm-hmm. in our views of what the landscape maybe should look like or could look like. And um, her her observation to Jim was, what does pheasants have to do with anything in corn country in South Dakota. Hmm. And it's like, you know what's on the uh, that quarter, right? There's a pheasant flying over Mount Rushmore. On the that's South Dakota commemorative on, quarter. Right. Yep. I mean, that's what pheasants mean in South Dakota, and she didn't see the importance of that at all. Hmm. Um, but he gets us together, uh, along with several of uh, her board members, and there was a couple of my board members, and uh, we sit down, and she goes after me, Instantly, and and he he teed me up for this, saying, you know, she's really a tough nut. She's not going to hold back. And I said, that's great. You know, I'll do a, you know, I'm I'm willing to listen, Mm -hmm. and I think we're pretty good students of listening. She says right out the chute, okay, you're anti-corn. I said, boy, you know, we're not anti-corn. You know, we just think there's room for conservation on, you know, most farms. And she goes, well, you're anti-ethanol. I said, you know, we're, again, we're not anti-ethanol. It's not our business what corn is used for. We know producers are, you need to feed fuel and, fiber. you know, fiber, you know, for America and the, the world. We we get that. Again, it's not our business what that commodity is used for. And she goes, well, you're pro-wheat. And I was like, boy, I've never heard that. We've never, you know, and I, and I understand, you know, in a wheat regime, pheasants, could use Scientifically, some of it for nesting. Yeah, they, they, they can do better. But, you know, we don't 
never talked about that in my 30 some years. Mm-hmm. I've never heard that statement. Um, she talked about uh, driving up land prices for agricultural land. Well, we're, we're not allowed to spend more than assess value when we buy land, if we buy land. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're not buying really any in South Dakota at that moment, and or really any. Um, and then she kind of runs out of air. And this, I mean, this went on for like 45 minutes. She's attacking us. And so then I get to say, well, you know, we are interested in, you know, the precision agriculture. And she was taken back. Why, why would we even care about what producers and what their economics are and, you know, rural South Dakota. And now we explain who we are. Um, and the, the good news was one of her uh, board members had one of our precision egg people come out and do that work. And so he's telling the story instead of me, hmm. which was magic. And then at the end of it, she kind of takes a breath and goes, you're going to be my keynote speaker at our annual meeting. Hmm. And I, and I thought it was, she was just being, you know, nice. And I said, sure, call me anytime and I'll be there. And she did about six months later, she called said, here's our date. Um, we have our annual meeting, you know, in Sioux Falls, we'd like you to be the keynote speaker. And so we agree on 80% of all things. Um, and then in that, I guess, and here, and here's the part that I learned, right? You know, I would have, I was assuming going in this and I was going to bring her 180 degrees all the way over to me, mm-hmm. right? Cause I have all the answers and I, right. I'm that smart. <laughs> What I didn't realize was she was, she did talk about sustainability. She did talk about water. She did talk about her producers and their viability and sustainability on those. And so we came back to dead center. I mean, I, you know, it, they were, you know, yeah, sure they want their nickel per bushel, but they want it done sustainably, thoughtfully. They want it to do, uh, be done smart. They don't, they do not want EPA to mandate um, what's going to happen on those fields. They need to get out ahead of it themselves and make the right decisions. Um, so it was a learning curve for me too. Um, one of the pieces that we worked on or we came to kind of consensus on, we talked about uh, saline soils mm-hmm. in South Dakota and that you see that as you drive out there. You see that salt, that white um, surfacing on, the, on those soils out there and you can't grow anything on it. And there, it's, it's something in excess of 6 million yep. acres of saline soils um, that is no longer, uh, you can't grow corn on it. Right. Anymore. It's not viable as farmland. Right. But you put habitat on it. Right. So you can put a cover crop on that. You can put a, a, a wheat that'll actually um, remove that saline component. And we feel we can uh, grow that soil back within five, eight years. And they could go back and farm that. Um, she committed $10,000. Uh, uh, and a handshake that she would put toward that program, which was just, you know, it's not the money, but it's the handshake that mm-hmm. South Dakota corn growers and pheasants forever are working together on farm landscape was just huge. And that was a differentiation in my mind at that moment that this could happen. We mm-hmm. could sit down, uh, but recognizing, you know, you you can't do it through paper and ink. You've got to be you know, within striking distance, yep. you know, um, you know, three, four feet away from someone to have this conversation. Um, then we rolled into Sioux Falls that following year. Um, For National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic, yep. and, which would have been uh, February of 18. Right. And uh, uh, so I hadn't seen Lisa since our face-to-face. 
and she came to a Thursday evening uh, dinner, kind of a special guest dinner. Um, it was great to talk with her and see her kind of reaffirmed where we were on the Salines program, you know, talked about some of the other partners we were bringing on that. Um, that, um, that evening, she stood up in the middle of it. This wasn't planned because her staff had no idea she was going to do it. Lisa stood up and pledged $100,000 mm-hmm. to the Saline Soils Initiative with Pheasants Forever. And, I mean, that mm-hmm. was the golden spike. Testament. Yeah, that... You know, she isn't in it for just the buying green. She's in it, you know, with with dollars and energy and time. And uh, Jim Ristow continues to be there. Sustainability. I think he's actually got sustainability in his title right now. Um, and so we're doing great things together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the Saline Soils Initiative continues to, to grow. Um, you know, yes. A lot of acres being planted in the grassland. And like you said, that those grasses are pulling those salty um, residue down into the soil. And right. In some places, it's healing the soil where they might be able to pull off a farm, um, I'm sorry, a crop. Right, and that that would be our goal. So we can get wildlife benefits in the interim here, and obviously that's 6 million acres of wildlife habitat uh, that we could deploy on that ground. We don't have enough resources to impact all those 6 Mm -hmm. million acres, but that would be our goal. Um, So, I mean, these are all tools uh, and partners that we've never had at the table in the past um, and this is happening, you know, really quickly in the last 18 to months to two years here. So um, that's what's ahead of us here uh, with with just one of the opportunities. So that, you're heading where I wanted to, to kind of get to our, our final, say we're in the eighth inning at the moment of this. Um, what do you perceive to be the future of Pheasants Forever and conservation? You've talked a bit about sustainability and you know, mentioned po- monarchs and pollinators. Where are, we, where are we heading in the next few years? Well, I think, you know, there's a, there's a couple things in our industry that we need to fix, and that is the decline in hunter numbers. Um, so Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, along with all of those other great NGOs out there and state partners are all in. Uh, under what's called R3, so recruitment, retention, and reactivation. How do we uh, make sure there's people who are going to continue the hunting tradition? Uh, If we, we believe hunters and shooters fund 80% of all conservation in America. And if, you know, right now 60-year-old white males are what's driving this, uh, that perfect bell curve. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're going to, we're at risk in the next 15 years you know, all things being equal, when you turn about 75, we find that people stop hunting, stop buying uh, hunting equipment. Um, that means we lose license sales. We lose that Pittman-Robertson excise tax punch. Um, who's going to fund conservation? So we need to make sure. Uh, and that perfect target audience right now are those millennials. Mm. Um, they, they can save us. Uh, I think they will. They'll come to the sport for a different reason. Then we came, let's say, I'm speaking for myself, how I came to it through my family. Um, They're going to come because they love the dogs. They're going to come because they love, they're a local vore and they want, you know, natural food. Mm -hmm. Uh, They want wild game. Um, They, I think the excitement to be outside, uh, that adventure side of that. Um, So they're going to come for different reasons and we need to be mentors for them. We need to be okay with that. Um, and of course we need to look differently, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, this not only 60-year-old males, this 60-year-old white male, white, white males. Um, we need to look at uh, different ethnicity. We need to look at gender, um, have a welcoming space for you know, anyone who would like to be in the outdoors. And they need to be invited, and they need mentors. Um, so, I mean, coming out of Pheasant Fest, you know, we had our Women on the Wing, uh, Women, Wine, and Wildlife uh, event, an incredible Election. amount of energy. Um, we've got programs. We know that uh, women own roughly, roughly 48% of uh, agricultural lands in the United States, and that in this next decade, that's they're going to be the primary landowners, and they're going to be making those decisions on those acres. Uh, we want to be a resource for them as well. Um, we do have some funding and some grants to help us do that. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, these are all things. So we've got to fix our own house and our own uh, while at the same time, right, we don't get to go to sleep on anything else, and that's creating habitat. Um, we want to have access to that for uh, those of us who want to hunt. Um, we were able to pass the PR Modernization Act, the Pittman Robertson Modernization Act, which will give the uh, Department of Natural Resources uh, a little bit bigger, better toolbox uh, to tell the story of hunting and shooting, mm -hmm. uh, to use those dollars to produce more hunting and shooting ranges out there, whether that's archery uh, or shooting. Um, and then, again, I'm, I'm going to go back to the relevant, uh, being relevant, and I think at the end of the day, our decisions are going to be around water hmm. um, at every turn. Um, if we think about, you know, the landscape we're living in, the runoff we're having out of fields, uh, Minnesota has seen this, Iowa has seen this. Uh, if you think about the city of Des Moines suing the counties north of them for their agricultural runoff right. uh, as part of I mean, they own the largest denitrification plant on the planet, and it costs them millions and millions of dollars to create drinking water for Des Moines. And they know where 80 to 90% of those contaminants come from, and it comes off agricultural fields. Um, how do we fix those? Um, in Iowa right now, there's an I Will uh, initiative, uh, Iowa. Uh, water, it, land, and legacy. Right. And so there, uh, the governor is ready to move that forward uh to get dedicated funding uh so we so can't dedicated funding for natural resources based on a increase in um uh, the uh, sales tax three eighths right? of one percent sales tax similar to the minnesota arkansas missouri have those programs yep. Yep. Uh, but finding a dedicated source of funds to go fix these problems mm -hmm. um, not only protect water build soils but get a wildlife benefit. Mm -hmm. um, and in a wildlife, that's a, again, it's a really broad definition. Um, you know, we don't really raise and release any birds, you know, it's, you know, what we put in the ground. And so what benefits from that? And you're back to monarchs and butterflies and ground nesting birds. And, right. um, so when you, when you talk about the connection between water and wildlife, I automatically think of um, Nobles County and Worthington Wells Yes. and how you know, I think it's up to 15 contiguous miles of habitat, and most of it permanent public access habitat in the form of WMAs and WPAs that the Nobles County chapter in conjunction with headquarters here in the Legacy Amendment has created all this habitat, grassland habitat and public access for the purpose, uh, well, our purpose is 
habitat for the birds, right? But for the community, um, it's to protect the drinking water. Yes, the groundwater. The groundwater around the town of Worthington, southwest Minnesota. And uh, for that community to continue to grow, you yes. need to protect the water. Yes. And so the, that's the that's the perfect story, right? So who, you know, what's the relevance of what we do on a landscape and how that can impact a community, a region, or a state? Mm-hmm. And the uh, Worthington Wells Project is a perfect example. We can get all the things that we want. Uh, we don't change who we are or how we deliver what we do, but the impact can be much greater than just the hunting shooting community. Right. All right. So as I wind down, we'll go to a, a quick little lightning round of some some fun questions. Um, I'll be the judge of that. Yeah. Well. <laughs> um, all right. So you, since you've been part of this organization, um, boy, thirty years now, right? Thirty-three as Thirty-three years. Yeah. How many banquets have you attended? Oh, I don't know. Um, Hundreds. Oh yeah, for sure. Have I you, mean, I was, you think you hit a thousand? Boy, you know, um, I don't know. I saw, let's say, 30, 30 banquets in the early years, 30, mm-hmm. 40 banquets a year times 20 probably, mm. right? So hundreds. Yeah, probably yeah. not 1,000 yet. You're closing in. We got to figure yeah, out a I, I could. I, yeah, I've got all my old calendars. I know exactly. When you show up to that 1,000th banquet, we'll have some confetti fire off and we'll give you a golden thing. When I say the the most memorable banquet you've ever attended, what jumps to mind? Oh, I don't know. You know, to me, it's the small things, right? It's not like, you know, Mm. you want to go to the biggest, best banquet. You're going to go to Mitchell, South Dakota, and Mm -hmm. right? I mean, they at the Corn Palace, Palace, that's just spectacular. Mm And the team out there is just, you know, a lot of characters. Mm -hmm. We love you guys. Um, But to me, what I think about is just those really small moments, you know, that, again, you know, will make you cry. Mm. You know, I'm down in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and this is 25 years ago. And there's a dad and a young boy. And I saw them come into the banquet. This is a big banquet. It was about 500 people at the time, I think. And it's at the big armory down there. And. You know, I'm just there. I'm going to talk for three minutes, right? You, you know, you've already sold the people. And again, these people don't know really who I am, the average member. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to talk, you know, I'm, and at that moment, I'm senior vice president or director of finance, whatever it is. Um, and I'm going to thank them. But I'm there for the committee, right, to show support and whatever. But anyway, I see this, um, a dad and a young boy who's probably eight. And he's, got, he's carrying a, a leash, a lead. You know, no dog with it, just mm-hmm. the leash. And it's kind of interesting. He's carrying it around all night. And then we look at the live auction, and there's they're going to auction off a puppy. And the auction starts, and, you know, $100, $200, and this dad and this boy are bidding on it. And you can see the little boy's eyes. He's just the smile on his face. He's going to go home with a puppy tonight. But on the opposite end of the stage that they can't see, and the auctioneer – has these two separate, he's got another buyer, and it goes to 300 and 400 and 500, and the, now the father is sweating. He's sweating. And the, there's a, the other individual who's bidding on this um, doesn't know who's bidding against him, but somebody smart in the chapter says, hang on a second, 
and he goes up to the auctioneer and he talks to him for just a second, runs over to the gentleman on the other side of the stage, mumbles something to him, and that gentleman stands up and looks across and sees this mm, dad, dad and, and this son. little boy, and he goes, I'm out. Hmm. That sticks with you. Yeah. That little kid went with a dog that night. Hmm. You ever you ever talk to them again? Um, no, I talked to them that night and just, mm. you know, the kid was just beside himself. And, mm. you know, the, the dad, you know, couldn't have been more thankful, mm-hmm. you know, to the gentleman who backed out and, uh, you know, someone thought full enough to, you know, make that work. So bring you to tears, I'm going to go the other direction. Who are the FBI? <laughs> <laughs> Fat boys from Iowa. <laughs> and I'm a... Uh, I'm a, a member because I fit that profile. <laughs> so they were profiling me. So these are some characters out of Plymouth County, Iowa, just the best group of guys. Uh, there's some big guys in that group. Mm-hmm. And so they've uh, self-selected the FBI. <laughs> and, uh, and you go to their banquet pretty frequently, right? Well, I haven't gone to their banquet, but now that you say that, I am going to go to their 35th anniversary banquet mm. coming up here. So and, and so in the day, I used to do 30, 40 banquets a year. Mm-hmm. Now, if I do two or three a year, it's because they're a 25th anniversary or a 30th. If, I, if it fits my calendar, right. uh, this will work uh, because I'll be able to get down there, and then I actually transition into the North American Wildlife Conference gotcha. down in Omaha. So that'll work fine. Uh, but it's, I'm scared to go there cause these guys are professionals <laughs> in, in all things. Um, so you, you mentioned you're going to go from there, travel to the, uh, North American, how many days, 365 days in a year, how many are you on the road? Probably about a hundred, 120. Is that the yeah. hardest component of this gig? Um, it used to be, um, in fact, it's, it's, it's interesting. So when my boys were growing up, um, and, you know, I thought back into public, again, back into public accounting and those partners that, you know, why their family lives were, you know, struggling, mm-hmm. you know, professionally they were great. But mm-hmm. um, so I managed my time and probably, you know, if I backed up when they were, when I was, so I coached them in everything, mm-hmm. right? And that was my excuse. I coached them in baseball, football, basketball, baseball. Did I say baseball? You did. I did. A few times. There was two of them. Yeah. There's two boys. So anyway, so I coached them in everything and that would prevent me from saying yes to travel. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm not going to, you know, Tuesdays and Thursdays I'm coaching and games or, right. um, so I'm not traveling. And so back then I was probably traveling 80 days. Mm-hmm. Um, but the boys, you know, grew up, went to college and, uh, my wife retired a number of years ago. So now my I'm traveling, you know, a third is much more, right? Mm-hmm. 120 days, right. but my quality of life is better. So, um, you know, when I go to an Omaha for a week, uh, my wife typically will come with me. So you check it out. Yeah. And so, you know, obviously we pay for her travel, um, you know, personally, but my travel's covered and we may even stay for the weekend, and have quality time. Prior to that, in those 80 days, let's say, you know, I would get in, get out. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't justify, 
you know, and my team, my, my hunters and my fishermen here would say if travel was wasted on me, I'd be <laughs> at these magic places in, you know, Calgary and on the bowl. Mm-hmm. They'd go, oh, this is the single greatest fishery, you know, in North America. you got to get out there. And, well, i got to get in and get out. Mm-hmm. Right? I'd go to Missoula. I'd be in the mountains and never take advantage of that. But now um, where I don't have to get home and, you know, my wife is with me, mm-hmm. you know, we've taken up fly fishing, so we'll stay f- a little bit longer and do those things, see those sites. So um, quality of life is better. Do you have a best friend in the wildlife community, another organization that serves as your mentor, sounding board, or buddy? You know, there's there's a a number of them. Uh, One is Steve Williams, um, who's the uh, CEO of the Wildlife Management Institute, former director of U.S. Fish and Wildlife. you know, I sit on his board, uh, but he's been a friend for a long time. And he, and he is, uh, he's probably, in, in my estimation, one of the top five wildlife minds in the United States. Um, hmm. And then, you know, I sit on a number of other boards, uh, Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partners, um, yeah, you know, with Fosberg. And he brings such a unique, different talent. You know, he's a different personality mm-hmm. than myself. Um, and, uh the the entertaining part of it for me is or the challenging even is to sit on his board and be a board of director mm-hmm. and also be appreciative of the position I'm putting him in right because mm-hmm. I ha- I'm a CEO and I've got a board that I answer to so that dynamic you know I'm on the totally other side of the fence but I can be appreciative of uh, and and even monitor the other board members as to what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. So, um, Hmm. you know, uh, God, there's so many uh, people in the, especially in the past, some have retired here, but uh, the one thing I've learned in this wildlife world is that even, you know, state and federal directors who have retired and now thought they were going to go fish and hunt the rest of their lives because they did it, did it all are back within a year because mm. it was never a job to begin with. And they're still passionate. Um, you know, they, they may not go back into agency, but they'll be as a consultant. Uh, they'll be available mm. as a volunteer to continue to fight the fight. Um, so that's heartening. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, so my mortality is, you know, coming here, you know, within the organization, you know, within a number of years here as I look forward and, you know, I'm having that, thought what do you so so second to last question what do you want to accomplish in your whatever number of years you have left what is there a is there a marker out there you're trying to achieve well there's a you know a number of things you know uh, the single most important thing is that the organization is left in the strongest position it can including uh, leadership Um, so making sure our executive team is the executive team that can carry us into the future. Uh, that's important. I will have no say in the next CEO. I mean, that's a board of directors uh, uh, initiative, and that's their role. Um, so they will do a national search. I know we'll have internal candidates as well as external candidates. But, again, that's not my business. But the leadership team um, that's in place when I leave needs to be you know, in in my mind, the right uh, leaders. And, and we have a succession plan uh, in place to do that, uh, we believe. Um, so that's exciting. 
Uh, and then, you know, but then at that point, then I think I am done. I, I don't think it would be fair to. You're not you going to jump on a tractor and be a habitat specialist? No, I can't see myself doing that. <laughs> there's there's more travel to be had. Yeah. You know, for sure. Mm. Um, you know, and I've got a, uh, a grandchild that's due. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm incredibly excited about that. This will be our first grandchild. Um, so. You know, so I joke about the habitat specialist piece, not um, not to make fun of habitat specialists, but Rick, who vice president of field ops office, Dextia, and has been there for 25 years. Um, well, Rick started in January of 87. I started in July of 87. And the reason I bring up that is what he's told you is when he retires, he's thinking about jumping on a tractor. Yeah. And yes. uh, putting habitat in the ground. Yes. And yes. just keep going. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's all of us. I, I, I see myself continuing to be on other board of directors, hmm. you know, the Council of Advanced Hunting and Shooting Sports, TRCP, Wildlife Management Institute. Um, I can see myself doing that. But, again, I wouldn't be on Pheasants Forever's board. I think that uh, puts the new CEO hmm. in an odd position where – you know, if I would feel terrible if, you know, something was presented and if their first look or second look was at me right. for somehow my approval to this, that, you know, to put somebody in that position isn't fair. I mean, I have all the confidence in the world that the board will make a, a good decision and, you know, the organization will. Well, we do, we do not need to accelerate this because, uh, as you know, um, I, I love working for you and I... I think it's a testament that uh, it, what's the phrase you 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 don't leave a job you leave a boss, and the longevity and um, the lack of turnover amongst folks here at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever is a testament to the your leadership style. Coming full circle, it is that that catcher mentality to know the tools of ignorance. <laughs> well. <laughs> I like to think of it as, you know, you do allow the pitchers to pitch the game, right? For sure. uh, The shortstops to field their position. And, uh, you know, when somebody goes to the plate, you encourage them and let them swing away. Yeah, for sure. You got to let them swing away. So final question. Um, As as you think about what you've accomplished and the organizations uh, accomplished under your leadership, whether it's a project or an initiative, what, what do you, like, what's your most proud component of what you've done? I think it's the team. I mean, the team we built here flat out, Um, you know, to carve one piece out um, is, you know, they they were just small steps Hmm. in a greater view that all of us have built, right? This isn't in any way my vision. You know, this is our vision um, from the, God, I'm really, you know, it's humbling to be in this position. If you think of the number of volunteers mm. at the chapter level who do this every single day and there's people out there, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm going to the 35th anniversary banquet down in Plymouth. Um, there's volunteers who have been there for 35 years. Right. Right. Longer than I've It is here. humbling. And so I'm so... Uh, this is an evolution, right? Again, there's no destination. You know, this is a journey and, you know, we, every day we've got to evaluate the impact we're having and how we can have a greater impact 
um, and that's what the machine is built for. You know, we still think no matter how, you know, we have 400 plus employees, we still feel like we're light cavalry. Mm-hmm. Um, so that allows us to adjust and refine and let go sometimes. And maybe those are the hardest things to let go. Something you really love, but you're not having, it's, it's not delivering the impact and uh, the desired results. So how do you do it differently? And so, you know, you know, I've got, there's one of those Howardisms, you know, <laughs> you, you want to piss me off, tell me the reason we're doing something is mm-hmm. because that's the way we've always done it. Mm-hmm. That'll make me mad. <laughs> it better be for all the right reasons. Yep. Um, and if it's not, let's reevaluate. So um, it's the team at mm-hmm. the end of the day. That's the greatest thing. And that in and of itself is a Howardism too. Yeah. Yeah. You, you are the epitome of a Hall of Fame catcher. You, I mean, that's it, nice. You, you really, I mean, that's the way I always think about you as, as Johnny Bench. Yeah. And that's a pretty damn good thing to live up to. I'll take that. Yeah. I'll take that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I've enjoyed working here, and obviously I've enjoyed this conversation. I hope listeners have as well. I'll, get, I'll let you get back to work for the day. <laughs> I'm sure we've talked. We've talked two hours. So okay. Good Beautiful. conversation. All right, folks, I hope you have enjoyed this episode of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast with President and Chief Executive Officer Howard Vincent from Duluth, Minnesota, to the top bird in all the land. (laughs) I'm Bob St. Pierre saying, always follow the dog, something good will rise. Thanks for listening.